In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 11. We'll dive into the fascinating story of Samuel, Eli, and how the Ark of the Covenant ended up in the hands of the Philistines. This is the account of how God spoke to the boy Samuel in the night and revealed his judgment against a wicked priest and his sons, and how God called him to be a prophet in a time of great turmoil. It's also the story of how God showed his power and glory in a war with the Philistines who captured the Ark of God, but would end up facing the consequences. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Monday, May 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for starting your week with us. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in a variety of languages around the world. Visit them online to learn more about their work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, to join in our conversation into 1 Samuel 3, going into chapter 4, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show regular contributor, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor Eckstein, as always, welcome back to the program. Yeah, good to be back. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. Uh, Before we get into our text for today, as always, I'd like to invite you to start us off with prayer. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and uh, especially to learn how you worked through Samuel uh, to speak your truth to your people that they might know you and your saving ways. Lord, we, we thank you that, that you worked through many other uh, prophets and also your apostles throughout history uh, to bring your truth to us that is ultimately fulfilled in your son, uh, the, the son of King David, whom uh, eventually uh, the prophet Samuel gets to anoint as king. And uh, we thank you so much that the history that we're studying in First Samuel uh, ultimately leads us to your son, the King of Kings, who uh, loved us so much that he died and rose again for us, that we might be citizens of his kingdom forever. So bless us as we study your word today and help us to see how it applies to our lives uh, in this world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our text today is in chapter 3, and we're going to head a little bit into chapter 4, but I think it would be a good idea before we get into any of our reading to uh, do a little recap of what happened last time. Brother, in chapter 2, if people missed the program, uh, what did we find out? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, obviously, we're going to learn about Samuel today, and Samuel is uh, none other than the son of a man named Ephraim and uh, one of his wives named Hannah. And uh, uh, if, if you read First Samuel chapter 1, of course, you find out that Hannah uh, was barren. She wasn't ha- able to have children for years. But then uh, she prayed to the Lord. He answered her prayer. He opened her womb and gave her Samuel. But she had previously prayed that if, if the Lord would give her a child, she would dedicate him to serving in the Lord's temple, which at this time in history was in Shiloh. 
And, uh, of course, in the first uh, uh, part of, of 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have Anna's prayer of thanksgiving to God for giving her Samuel. And, and what's interesting, you probably talked about this, uh, I'm sure, uh, when you went through this, but um, uh, uh, there's parts of Hannah's prayer that are similar to the Magnificat of Mary, uh, where, where we see that, that God can take humble unbelievers who have nothing as far as this world is concerned and exalt them, uh, whereas those who have everything this world offers but don't have the Lord, the Lord can bring them down. So again, you know, uh, what, what is important in this world, Hannah shows that, that uh, God does not honor those things. He, he, his interests are in, in other areas. He wants people who are humble before him and trust in him, but none of the things of this world. But then, um, of course, uh, Hannah is true to her oath. She, she brings Samuel to the temple, and we'll be reading about that today where we get Samuel's call. But there's one other bit of information in First Samuel 2 that we need to know about uh, in order to understand the end of today's text as well. And that is we learn about uh, the priest Eli and his worthless sons, uh, the, his two sons who uh, are, are just notorious for doing evil things. And uh, their, their names are Hophni and Phineas. And uh, uh, even though uh, Eli does uh, rebuke them, uh, he apparently doesn't uh, do it uh, sternly enough because his sons don't repent. And eventually the, the Lord uh, uh, says he will uh, discipline them for their lack of repentance uh, to the point of taking their lives. And, and we'll learn about that today. But, but that's prophesied. In First Samuel chapter two, and we see the fulfillment of that uh, in in verse eleven of First Samuel chapter four, which we'll get to today. Well, that's an excellent uh, recap of what's happened. Yeah, our text from last time ends uh, with verse thirty-five. It says, "And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house." And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Of course, that word forever, I think, lends to a proleptic fulfillment of this prophecy, yeah. right? So Samuel is just but the first of that fulfillment. Of course, we're going to see David and then eventually uh, Christ our Lord. <clears throat> but our text for today is going to be uh, chapter 3. And I'm going to read, um, you know, all the way through verse 18. That's a big chunk, but I, I think it uh, gives us most of the narrative so that we can uh, start taking it apart. So here we go. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. Then Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And Yahweh called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. And Yahweh called Samuel again the third time, and he arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. 
Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, you Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went, and he lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house, from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here I am. And Eli said, What is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. Okay, brother, I realize that's a big chunk of text, but going way back up to the top, um, we have Samuel. He's just a boy, and, and Samuel's always presented as doing some ministering. And in this case, he's ministering to Yahweh in the presence of this priest Eli. I, I, you might also say, I guess, under his tutelage. Uh, take us right. through what's being revealed here. Well, first of all, you know, and we're not sure of all the exact duties uh, that uh, um, Samuel would have been doing, but he, he maybe would have been helping with the sacrifices, maybe some of the, the slaughtering, uh, 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 some other basic duties. Uh, but as you, as, you, as you mentioned, he's being mentored by Eli. And then you have this very interesting uh, uh, situation where on this particular night, uh, Yahweh is calling to him. And, and we're said that, that Samuel did not know the Lord or had uh, the word of the Lord ever came to him. And, and that, that doesn't mean that Samuel didn't know about Yahweh. I'm, I'm, I'm very sure his parents, and especially Eli, taught him about the Lord. But I think here it's, it's referring to the fact that Samuel did not have the special uh, uh, personal uh, revelatory experience with Yahweh, where, where, where Yahweh spoke directly to him. So Samuel didn't know what was going on at this point. He was hearing this voice, assuming it was Eli. And then, of course, uh, Eli finally catches on and realizing, hey, the Lord might be speaking to him. So he, he tells Samuel, well, the next time you hear this voice, say, well, uh, here I am, Lord, speak. And uh, then it's interesting in verse 10, it says, uh, and the Lord came and stood. Now, interesting anthropomorphic language there. Uh, we don't get all the details here, but it makes me wonder if, if the Lord appeared in some sort of, of, of human form at this point. Uh, we see that happening at, at other times in, in uh, the Old Testament. We think of the visitors to Abraham and how we find out one of them later was the Lord himself. You know, so so who knows exactly how the Lord appeared to to um, Samuel at this time? But we have this interesting language, and the Lord Yahweh came and stood, calling at other times, uh, Samuel, Samuel, and then uh, of course uh, the Lord uh, reveals to Samuel 
in this particular case, this this very uh, difficult information for Eli that God is going to carry out punishment against his sons and ultimately Eli's family line uh, because of Eli's refusal to restrain them. And uh, a quick comment on this. If you read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see that, that uh, Eli does attempt to rebuke his sons, but uh, uh, they don't listen. They don't repent. And uh, according uh, to the Lord here, Eli could have done more. Uh, uh, you know, ultimately, I, I'm thinking what Eli should have done is when, when he rebuked his sons and his sons did not repent, at this point he should have said, okay, well, then you're done being priests. I'm gonna, if, you, if my sons can't do the job, I'm going to find someone else. But he doesn't do that. And part of me wonders if it's not like, okay, I know my sons are sinning. I know they're, they're you know, uh, you know uh, treating uh, the Lord's temple in an abominable way. But, you know, they're my sons, and I kind of want to have this family gig go on. So I've warned them, what more can I do? Well, yeah, you, you could have just fired your sons technically, but he doesn't do that because he cares more about his family line, his heritage, than, than about honoring Yahweh. So uh, you know, Yahweh is basically saying, Eli, you should have been more stern with your sons, and because you weren't and they haven't repented, uh, this is going to be the result. And uh, once uh, Eli insists that Samuel tells him this, uh, at the very least, on one good note, uh, Eli is willing to submit to the Lord's punishment. He, he admits, I think of the thief on the cross, where he says, we're getting what our deeds deserved. <laughs> and, uh, and here Eli finally says, you know, the Lord is right. Uh, you know, let him do what seems good to him. Um, but even though Eli here is at least uh, still a believer in a sense and willing to accept the Lord's judgment, uh, we find out that, that in spite of Eli's rebukes, um, Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, obviously continue to harden their hearts and do not repent. And, of course, things don't end well for them. There are a few things that stand out to me also as we read through this. And really, kind of even going back to the beginning, you know, I think it's interesting that uh, Samuel seems to note here about Eli's eyesight having begun to grow dim. And that is juxtaposed to the next verse, this is verses 2 and 3, that says the lamp of God had not yet gone out. It, it, it seems to me that in addition to just the first level reading, the obvious stuff here, right? So Eli is old, his eyesight has grown dim, he really couldn't see, and he's lying down in his own place. I, I almost wonder if there's any kind of, um, I don't know, a reflection of his own spiritual... I guess, you know, dullness. I don't know what else to say. Just this idea that, you know, his vision of the Lord and, and the role that he played and, and God's presence among them. We're going to, we learn in this text also that, you know, there weren't a lot of visions in those days. Um, so, you know, his eyesight, his focus on the Lord has begun to grow dim. But the first level reading of the next verse is, of course, that it's almost morning because the lamp hasn't gone out. But there's also sort of this symbolic impression that I get that, you know, God's still there. You know, it's flickering, <laughs> you know, in terms of the people's worship of him, but God's still there. And that's the same sentence, basically, in which we then are told that Samuel's lying down in the temple, not in his own place, but he's lying down uh, where the ark of God was. Now, in this... Um, I guess tabernacle, really, probably more than temple. In this tabernacle, uh, he wouldn't have been laying in the Holy of Holies for sure, but 
But is right. this is this showing us maybe his proximity to God as opposed to Eli? I, I don't know. How do you take those things? Am I reading too much into it? Yeah, well, I, I think I find it's interesting, even though the text doesn't specifically mention uh, the second level thing that you s- suggested, I think we can certainly, uh, especially in a wider uh, reading of Scripture, uh, realize that, that the, the physical uh, light and, and Eli's you know, physical uh, dimness of eyesight it can also be understood spiritually in a way that, that, you know, we know that the Bible talks about God's Word as a light. It also talks about um, uh, blindness in a spiritual sense, you know, being unable to see spiritually the truth of God and embrace it. So you, you definitely have this going on here, um, again, with, with Eli not willing to be as stern with his sons as he ought to have been. You know, I can't help but think of what Jesus says in the New Testament, you know, if you love your father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. You know, it's almost here as though Eli, he cares more about his son's prestige and his ongoing, her, you know, uh, heritage uh, than honoring the Lord, and, and ultimately his family line pays the consequences for that. So, so there is this spiritual blindness on Eli's part, even though he is a priest, uh, unfortunately. And, and yet we, we have Samuel, on the other hand here, who, who's sort of this young, naive boy, but, but, but uh, innocent in heart, and, and, and is, is uh, willing to be receptive to the things of God. And the, and the fact that he's sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant, there's definitely this idea here is that, that, that he is close to the presence of God, where God has chosen to have his glory dwell. I also think that in terms of Samuel's own personality, or at least duties, the fact that when he hears God, it, at least the impression I get is that he's jumping to his feet, and he runs to his master, essentially, Eli, and says, you know, well, here I am, right? What can I do? Uh, you know, we have these this idea that he's serving in the temple, he's ready and willing as soon as he's called to basically jump up and run in. Um, but then these words in verse 4, the way he goes to Samuel and says, here I am, there's kind of an echo of the the, the responses of, say, like Abraham, right? So God tests right. Abraham. He says, Abraham. And Abraham says, you know, here I am. Um, right. in, in Exodus, you know, the Lord uh, from the bush says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Now, you uh, can get that with Noah. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. The Lord is calling out. And, uh, and you know, a lot of people wonder, you know, nowadays, you know, well, why doesn't the Lord speak like this to all of us? Well, I find it interesting. It says uh, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. I would argue that if you look out through the whole history of, of salvation history, the narrative, uh, the, the times that God actually speaks directly to people, his prophets and apostles, is rare. It, it's not a common thing that happens. And so, you know, we, we have to be wary of people today who claim that the Lord has spoken to them. In fact, as we're going to see, um, you know, not only are people like Samuel rare, in salvation history, but but ultimately uh, he, he doesn't expect people just to take his word for it. Uh, the Lord proves Samuel to the people by allowing him to uh, be tested, and by that I mean all his prophecies come true. 
uh, the, uh, Samuel has never proven to be a false prophet, whereas there are others who speak and claim that Yahweh has spoken to them, but their prophecies don't come true and are proven to be false prophets thereby. And, and we think of many people today who have claimed, you know, that God spoke to me and they make these prophecies and that they don't come and then they don't come true. Uh, you know, uh, so we have to realize that yes, God did indeed reveal Himself in special ways. But th- these were rare situations where he was laying foundational teaching from his Old Testament prophets, and then also we think of his New Testament apostles. But for most people throughout history, w- uh, the Lord speaks to us through the word he has given through his prophets and apostles. Uh, so if we want God speak to us t- today, we don't just lay in our bedrooms and wait for God to audibly, audibly speak to us. Uh, if we want the Lord to speak to us today, we go to his written word. Uh, where he speaks to us. But here we, we see that God is, is laying some foundational teaching here, and he does that directly by speaking to Samuel in person. The point you make about it being rare is really, I think, important for people to understand. <laughs> because imagine, you know, it's so rare that when it happens, places get named after it. It gets passed down in oral history, written down in the scriptures. Um, And so if you take that and multiply by all the opportunities over human history that God could talk to people, it ends up being extremely rare. And yet, yeah, you make this great point that today people are so often like, well, you know, if if God could just talk to us, then we would believe. Or uh, to think about Lazarus uh, in that in that parable, you know, if, if if you could just if my brothers could see someone risen from the dead, they'll believe. And. You know, and Jesus says they have Moses and the prophets. And, there you and, go. And there we see yeah. that, that for, for most people throughout history, God wants us to, to base our faith on the established uh, teaching passed down from his chosen prophets uh, and apostles. And that's why I think of some liberal churches today where, where, where you get the slogan, you know, God is still speaking. Um, now, if they mean by that he's speaking through the scriptures, fine. But what they usually mean is, no, he's giving us uh, new insights from the Spirit. You know, uh, my, in my heart, I just feel God is leading us to believe this. And then many, many times what the Spirit is spo- supposedly leading them to believe is in direct conflict with the foundational teaching God's prophets and, and apostles have given us. So, so any person who just claims that God is speaking to them can be proved to be false if, if what they're saying uh, is from God conflicts with what God has already given us in, in the Scriptures. And so uh, even in the Old Testament, it was important uh, to compare what prophets were saying with, with previously established uh, prophetic utterances that were proven to be true from Yahweh. So again, I think the importance of showing not only how rare this is, but how uh, once this, this foundational teaching was given, that was used to judge all future prophecies as well. Just real quick, to you did bring it up, but I want to just highlight it. Verse 7, it tells us that Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. Uh, you know, I've heard this misunderstood and misapplied throughout my life growing up, um, not in the Lutheran Church, but actually in other church bodies, where, you know, they say, well, you know, Samuel wasn't of the age that he could make a decision for Christ. I've literally heard this preached in that context. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, I, I, of course, heard your explanation, which I agree with wholeheartedly, uh, but just, I guess, for the people in the back row, <laughs> let's reemphasize um, how this relates to him being called as a prophet, not necessarily the fact that he didn't know God yet. Of course, he would have known of God. Yes. Well, uh, first of all, uh, not, not only did he not 
yet know God in the sense that God had not given him a special revelation. But also, I think it's important to realize when it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, it does not mean that he was not a believer. I, I believe he, he firmly was. He didn't know the Lord in, in this special prophetic way that, that now happens. But in, in, in uh, response to the point you were making that, that you know, uh, uh, some, in, in some non-Lutheran traditions, they think, oh, he hadn't reached the age of accountability yet. He, he didn't have conscious faith yet. You know, uh, we would say that even infants can have faith even though they don't consciously, intellectually know the Lord in that sense. But I think what's important in the Scriptures is not so much that we know the Lord, but that He knows us, that He puts His claim on us through baptism, uh, through, through the Word. Now, obviously, back here at, at this point in salvation history, they didn't have baptism, but Eli was, um, and Samuel was most certainly circumcised, and uh, uh, his mother commended him uh, to the Lord in prayer. So the, the important thing here is that Yahweh knew Samuel, and, and that was the basis of Samuel's salvation, not some conscious, uh, you know, uh, making a decision for Yahweh that happened later in his life. Uh, it, it's Yahweh knowing us that results in our salvation. I think that's an excellent take and certainly something for us to remember. So then, of course, it takes three times for Eli, not Samuel, to kind of figure out that this is Yahweh calling you. Now, the text speaks nothing of Eli's, I guess, disposition or opinion of this, but I can't help but speculate. Here we are living in a time when visions and and revelations from God are rare. Eli, he, he recognizes that God's calling Samuel. And I think that might inform us a little bit on later when he's pestering him. Maybe I'm adding that adjective, but when, when Eli's sort of pressing Samuel to tell him what Yahweh said. Um, now, we know that uh, Samuel is hesitant because of the, the content of the revelation, but I wonder if Eli is a little jealous of this. Well, uh, not only might he be a little jealous, but uh, it, uh, I'm not surprised that he asks Samuel, what did God say to, you? say to you? Because you might remember back from 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verse 27, and we're not given any details about this man of God. It just says, there came a man of God to Eli. And, and this guy already lets Eli know that God is not pleased with him. That, that there's going to be discipline on his family line. So, so Eli kind of already knows that there's trouble coming. <laughs> and, and so I can't help but wonder, and not only maybe is, is he a little bit jealous, like, boy, what, why is the Lord speaking to Samuel and not to me? But in one sense, he's maybe uh, uh, realizing, hey, uh, you know, uh, if the Lord is speaking to Samuel, I'm wondering if he's got more to say uh, in regard to what the man of God said to me previously. And, of course, that ends up being exactly the case. I think that's a much better point. Yeah, it's probably more uh, the fact that he's like, okay, you know, I know something bad's happening. What what's going to happen? What did he tell you? What? Yeah, that's 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 a rough one for Eli, and I get this sense from Eli that unlike his sons, who were just the Bible describes them as worthless men. That's usually a description that's given to some pretty bad hombres, so to speak. Uh, I think that that Eli has this. And you, you did illustrate this already, but he, he wants to serve the Lord, but he's caught between his love for his sons and his desire for perhaps his own um, legacy and, of course, what the Lord wants him to do. 
So we have him. He calls him. He says, listen, that's probably Yahweh talking to you. Answer him. Speak for your servant is listening. And it turns out to be the Lord. Uh, And um, so Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. And then he, he threatens him. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And of course, I, I, you know, Samuel is obedient. We already already established that obedient, of course, to the Lord, but also obedient to Eli as his uh, his teacher, his master there in the temple or the tabernacle. And so he he tells him. And yes, in verse twenty uh, one, oh, probably we haven't gotten that far. Verse uh, eighteen, it says, uh, "Well, he is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him." Here are verses 19, 20, and 21, which actually end the chapter. Here we go. And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. So Samuel gets this um, reputation, and rightly so, for being a true prophet of God. You already said he, he didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. Yeah, you could test him, which is the means by which you could tell an Old Testament prophet if he was true, by if what he said would come true does. And we see that. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's you know, amazing here. Uh, some people might think, boy— you know, uh, yeah, even though Eli's sons were, were real jerks, so to speak, it, 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 you know, the Lord seems pretty harsh with them. You know, uh, uh, couldn't he be a little more patient? Well, you have to realize, it, it, if Hophni and Phinehas had actually repented, if they had humbled themselves before the Lord, I think things would have turned out differently. Uh, uh, what we see here is that God did give Hophni and Phinehas plenty of opportunities. He even worked through their father, Eli, to warn them. But rather than uh, accepting God's judgment and humbling themselves and repenting, it, it appears that they just hardened their hearts all the more. And and so eventually the, the, you reach a point of no return. And that's what happened here. You know, uh, here we see that, that even though God is merciful and wants all to be saved, he also will not be mocked. Uh, or kind of like Hannah said in, in, in her prayer back in, in, in 1 Samuel 2, you know, th- those who are strong and arrogant in their own eyes, the Lord can bring them down. Or like it says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Uh, the Lord makes the poor rich, and uh, he brings the low, uh, and he exalts them. Uh, but but those who are arrogant and haughty, he can certainly bring them down, and that's what we see happening, sadly, to unrepentant Hophni and Phineas. Well, we're going to hear more about the exploits of Samuel as God uses him to bring judgment to the Philistines, but it's going to take a little while. Uh, right now, we're going to take a break. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Eckstein and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel, now chapter 4. See you on the other side. Oh! 
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Friends, thanks for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. If you want to reach out with a question or comment or just to say hello, you can get me on Facebook. You can also find me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And if you like Thy Strong Word, I encourage you to share it with others who might enjoy it too. The program can be heard on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can subscribe to it on your favorite podcasting platform, or you can do like I do and download the KFUO app. I have my KFUO app streaming through my Google Play in the car or Google Auto, Auto, whatever they call it. But it's great. I listen to it in the in the truck, and it's it's a you can take it on the road with you. Regardless, I appreciate that you've chosen to grow in your faith with me and my guests each weekday. So thank you for being part of the show. Well, Pastor Eckstein, before the break, we we have now uh, the Lord Yahweh appearing again at Shiloh to uh, Samuel, and he reveals. Well, the text actually says, it's a little redundant, the text says, Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Uh, But that's for emphasis and importance. So they're worshiping at Shiloh. Um, Anything about the location of worship? Jerusalem is not yet the official worship place of, um, of the Israelites. And I guess they worship also at Shechem, but Shiloh, um, anything to take away from that? Where, where the location? Well, yeah, well, right now, I, as you said, at this point in Israel's history, Shiloh is where the the, the tabernacle is set up. You, you don't yet have a an actual uh, full building that you, we don't get that later until Solomon. Uh, uh, but but the actual uh, location of of um, uh, the 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 temple is uh, at Shiloh at this point. But but as far as that being the focus of worship, that, that's going to begin to change now with the ark being captured, because you know that that was sort of the the, the big sign that Yahweh is present among us. And now when the ark is taken from Shiloh, Shiloh kind of tends to lose its 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 focus. And of course, uh, you'll get this in in later chapters in First Samuel. But um, uh, the ark sort of has a, a travels around to different places for a while. <laughs> And I don't want to take away from your future studies, but but uh, uh, eventually it even ends up in the home of a guy and stays there forever and ever uh, until later on. Uh, but yeah, we don't get the temple actually being uh, built in Jerusalem itself uh, as, as, a, as an actual uh, a building until the time of Solomon. Uh, but at this point, yes, Shiloh is, is the center of, of priestly worship in the temple. Well, let's see what happens next with chapter 4, and we're not going to cover the entire chapter, just, pardon me, just verses 1 through 11. 
Uh, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to get us started. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. All right, just stopping there for the moment. So Israel goes out to battle the Philistines. They get their uh, they get their rear ends whooped, so to speak. Uh, and interesting, I actually think, is that they the response is not that the Philistines have beat them, but that rather God has defeated them before the Philistines. Uh, interesting right. take. Uh, well, what are we seeing happening here? Well, it's interesting here. Um, uh, you might think, okay, is God sending us a message? You know, he said, you know, he would bring us to the promised land and defeat our enemies. Um, but there's always this understanding, too, if you're faithful to me, if you trust in me, if, if, if you compromise my word, I'm going to discipline you. Well, that's what we see happening here. But here's the sad thing. They recognize, oh, maybe this is discipline from God. But instead of repenting, which is what Hophni and Phinehas need to do, um, they go and get the Ark of the Lord as, it's, as though it's some magic amulet or magic object. Uh, it's almost as though they're treating God like a, a, a local deity, an idol. Uh, you know, our God's stronger than your God type of thing. And, uh, and, and rather than realizing that their problem is their own sin, and they need to repent and trust in Yahweh's mercy, instead they think, well, uh, we just don't got enough of the right weapons, we'll, we'll, we'll go get the Ark of the Covenant, and then, and then God will be with us, and, and how can the Philistines fight against this? So, so they're, 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 they're almost treating God more like a genie in a lamp uh, who can grant them their wishes uh, if, if they have the right object, rather than uh, agreeing with the word of Yahweh that they've sinned and they, they need his forgiveness and mercy. So uh, we're going to see that when they bring the Ark of the Lord there, even though the Philistines are initially scared, it doesn't turn out well for the Israelites. Well, just for folks at home, too, we're not going to see or hear from really Samuel again until chapter 7. These are sort of interludes that are happening as Samuel is you know, doing what he does. Uh, but back to the account that's going on, yeah, you know, I think what stands out to me is in verse 4 when it talks about Yahweh who sits between the cherubim, right? So there's cherubim on the ark. This is a very pagan understanding of their gods. And it came out on this program back when we were discussing Exodus. And when they made the golden idol, um, you know, the, the Moses or Aaron makes this idol and he says, here is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I, that always really confused me. And upon researching it, the pagans believed that their idols were often the thrones of their gods who were otherwise spiritual. And so right. it has been speculated that even the golden calf was merely a throne for Yahweh, which 
you know, right God, but wrong method of worship. And here we have um, this idea of the mercy seat, which is understandable. And then we have the Ark of the Covenant with these cherubim on it and all that kind of stuff. So it seems to me, as you've already pointed out, that, that, yeah, they were treating this as like, okay, well, this is God's throne. We know he rests upon it as if he was some, you know, uh, uh, pagan deity. Uh, and if, right. I guess if he's in the midst of us, there's no way that he'll he'll let us lose. Uh, but they're taking what in, into their own hands something that they shouldn't. This is not the way God has instructed them to worship. It reminds me, actually, brother, of in the Middle Ages when people would take the consecrated hosts from yeah. the sacrament and do things like use them as amulets or plant them in their garden for or, for uh, blessing harvest or basically anything other than what God has instructed us to do, which is take and eat. Exactly. Not only that, but you think uh, today how, how sometimes people will e- even use like a, a cross or a crucifix as almost like a good luck charm. You know, now, if I'm wearing this, God will protect me. Or, or maybe putting a, a statue of a saint on your dashboard in your car. Or I even, I even visited with some people in, in my, my community once who said that they buried a statue of St. Joseph in their yard, because that would help them sell their house, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and they were actually believed this. And uh, so here, it's not that God did not come to dwell among Israel, but now they, they were treating God like any other idol, a God we can manipulate, a God we can use for our purposes, rather than, than realizing here is the creator of the universe uh, who has promised a savior for all nations through Abraham, and, and we need to submit to his word and repent when he calls us to repent. But I find it just ironic that here you have Hophni and Phinehas, who've been warned multiple times by their father, they refuse to repent, and yet they think they can carry the ark, the holy ark of the covenant of God, and nothing's going to go wrong even though they're, they're touching these holy things with unrepentant hearts. It's kind of like what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You know, you, if you come to the Lord's Supper and you, you, you eat the body and blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner that is without repentance, uh, it's not going to end well for you. And, it, and we see that's the case here. It doesn't end well for them at all. You brought out something that hasn't been explicitly stated yet, but makes perfect sense, and that is that who's the one who is going to bring out this this ark. I mean, obviously, it's the elders of Israel who are requesting slash demanding it, but obviously, who's going to bring it out? Well, yeah, it's going to be, and we know from what happens later that it is them. They're, they're there present, but yeah, it's the sons of Eli. They're, they're up to their old tricks again. Um, there's just a lot of shenanigans going on about it. Uh, let's read verses 5 through 9 to uh, see what happens next. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they had learned that the Ark of Yahweh had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now we're going to end right there. 
So we don't know the result of the battle yet, but right. it seems to me that uh, there might be a psychological component that that might give credence to the Israelites with that ark being there. So they bring the ark out, and now despite what they believe being wrong about God's presence being closer somehow because of the ark, they now are shouting and they're the earth is trembling. They're stamping their feet. You know, it seems like it's going to rile them up enough where they very well might win this thing and, and they might get the wrong idea. And of course the Philistines, they're afraid there's, they're the ones in charge. And, and so now it seems like the Ark of the Covenant, if nothing else so far has certainly been a source of, uh, of rallying and pep for the Israelites. Well, I found it very interesting too that that uh, the, the the events that happened during the Exodus uh, are, are still uh, you know known by these later generations. Uh, I, I, for example, e- even before this, years before this, when when uh, Joshua was first bringing God's people in the Promised Land, you remember remember when they were uh, getting ready to conquer Jericho, and, and yet Rahab and her family was spared because. Uh, uh, she had helped the spies of Israel, but her comment was, you know, I've heard of your God and what you did, you know, to what he did to the Egyptians and how he brought you out of there. I, I, I'm putting my trust in him. So, so just as Rahab had heard about what Yahweh did for his people, e- even years later after that, you have these Philistines who remember, hey, uh, and I find it interesting that they say gods, plural, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> but but they're they're saying, hey, these are the gods who did all those uh, horrible things to the Egyptians, you know, what if they do the same to us? You know, uh, we, 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 we better, uh, you know, fight for our lives. Uh, otherwise we're going to be destroyed. You know, we have to give it everything we can so that we're not defeated. So, uh, even though obviously, uh, you know, uh, Hophni and Phinehas were hoping that the Ark would inspire the Israelite armies, which it obviously did, but, um, it also, uh, motivates the Philistines to fight even harder. But the problem here ultimately ends up being this. Uh, even though it's true that God did help their ancestors by bringing them out of Egypt and doing all those mighty wonders, it's almost as though God's people now are presuming upon God. It's not like, well, God did it in the past. He's got to do it now. And they're, they're forgetting that God is under no obligation to do anything for us. <laughs> and, and if we have this haughty attitude that we can we can live in rebellion against God, and he's going to be this genie who comes out of the lamp every time we rub it and, and be on our side, uh, well, they have another thing to learn at this point. That actually brings to my mind a lot of folks in our own day and age, and I'm sure throughout history, who have done the wrong thing for the wrong reasons, and just because they believed that God was or would be on their side, you know, they met their destruction. I, I, I guess in my mind, it th- I think about the the gangster who has the big tattoo on his back that says, you know, only God can judge me. And it's like, yeah, and that should terrify you. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, we have them. They're all they're all worked up. You mentioned how they already had heard or knew about what had happened in Egypt and how that has carried through the ages. You know, sometimes when I talk about different uh, false gods and deities and other religions and stuff, you know, I— I, I tell the folks, you know, well, actually, I've been asked before. Well, did the pagans or the other nations around the Israelites did they believe in Yahweh? And I say, well, yeah, I'm sure they did. You know, yeah. to them, you know, they could take multiple gods, put them all on the shelf with each other, and worship them all together. 
And so Yahweh to them was just one more God or gods in this case, right? The word Elohim is technically plural. They probably get really confused over whether there's one or multiple gods. But what's fascinating is that everybody they encounter seems to understand that their God is, is a good one, <laughs> is, is a strong yep. one, is a mighty one. And you can't help but laugh because you, you, us here so many thousands of years removed go, well, yeah, I guess you would think that because if you're, if you're praying to a lump of clay and gold and wood and nothing ever happens, and then their God actually does stuff, then, then the only thing you can take away is their God is real and ours aren't which they're not prepared to do, or their gods are just really strong. But like you said, it really riles them up to defend themselves. Yes. It's almost like, well, we, we can either lie down and, and uh, uh, you know, be, become slaves, or, or, or we can fight for our lives and see what happens. And, and uh, obviously the Philistines are ready to do that. And unfortunately, um, uh, the Israelites uh, have uh, sort of a, a misgiven confidence here. Uh, they assume God's going to be on their side, even though they're living in open rebellion. Uh, and uh, again, uh, we, you maybe want to finish this out. We know mm-hmm. it doesn't end well for them. It doesn't. So let's read the last two verses, 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Yeah, so that's how it ends, them getting a greater slaughter than before. And the ark of God, which was holy and sacred, uh, but they were treating as sort of a totem, ends up being taken away from them. And I think this is a good reminder to, uh, you know, we, we might be tempted to think, oh, those two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, you know, what a bunch of jerks. <laughs> but we have to look at our own lives today and say, oh, when maybe are we sometimes guilty of having the same um, erroneous way of looking at God? You know, uh, rather than actually repenting of our sins and realizing that, that any mercy God gives us is totally undeserved, you know, the temptation is to think of God as someone whom we can obligate to us. As though, okay, yeah, there's things I've been doing that God doesn't like, but rather than repenting of them, I'm going to go out and do A, B, and C, do something good. You know, maybe uh, volunteer for a charity or give a bunch of money to church. And then I kind of put God in my debt. And, uh, and so as long as I do a bunch of good stuff, you know, God will overlook my rebellion and uh, he, he will reward me accordingly. And, and we almost have Hophni and, and Phinehas uh, thinking this way. It's like, rather than repenting and acknowledging their sins, um, they almost think, well, if, if we carry this ark of God and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and show that we believe God is really strong, uh, uh, he'll be impressed with that and, and reward us accordingly. And, uh, of course, their, their very idolatrous way of looking at God himself uh, uh, is, uh, results in their own death. Because uh, e- even though they have the true God, they're not treating him like the true God. They're, they're treating him like a God they can manipulate and, and, and obligate to, to serve them according to their whims. And, and, and whenever we think of God in that way in our day as though, well, you know, I've lived a good life. I've tried my best to be faithful to him. Now he owes me. Uh, that's never a good spirit to have. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we look at these types of texts, and, and I guess what I'm really drawn to also is that there is a way to use 
the holy things of God in an unholy way. So yes. even though the Ark of the God, Ark of the Covenant, even though it was set apart, kept in the Holy of Holies, uh, reverenced but not worshipped, you know, there was a purpose for it, teaching and passing down the message and covenants of God. Once they started using it in ways that weren't consistent with the way God wanted them to, he has it taken away from them. I think there's a message in there for us, too, because, yeah. you know, we have the blessings of God, and yet God very well may take these things away from us if we don't preserve them and uphold them in the right ways. Uh, you know, we already mentioned the communion, uh, but there are so many things that God gives us, even our ability to gather in worship and to hear the Word of God. If we take those things for granted or treat them as you were talking about, treat them as, you know, incur having God incur debt to us because we're so good as to show up and donate or something yeah. more crass, that, then God could very well one day with the Philistines in our lives just take them away. Yep. You know, I think too how there's a temptation in our culture where, where sadly our culture is moving away from, um, you know, uh, church being the center of our lives. Uh, there, the, you know, sadly, there's a lot of spiritual apathy in our culture. Um, and yet, you'll find people, they, they might not show up to church hardly at all, and yet there's, there's still some sense of um, uh, uh, nostalgia for the church building. It's like, oh, as long as we keep the building there, you know, and, and, and maybe we, 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 we donate money to keep it looking nice, you know, uh, that, that's what it means to be religious. You know, that's God's house, and as long as we're nice to God's house, things will go well for us. You know, forgiving <laughs> why it's there in the first place. You know, and, uh, and, and sometimes you, you've seen situations where, where uh, fellow Christians are at odds with each other, that they're, they're not living according to God's Word, but boy, we're going to keep this church open because this church building has been here for years, and, 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 uh, and, and so we've we got to keep it open, and yet uh, the, the, the focus uh, of actually believing what Scripture teaches and striving to live it out is not there. And, and so, you know, whenever we put our faith in misplaced things, and, and uh, like you said, use holy things in improper ways, uh, there might come a time where God will say, okay, uh, as a way of getting your attention and disciplining you, I'm just going to take this away from you and, and show you what, what it really means to, to trust in me. Uh, I'm not about a bunch of buildings and holy relics. That, that's not uh, what it's about. Such an important thing to remember. Well, we're here at the close of our show. Anything else you want the people to make sure that they, they know, take away from this text or anything else before we end? Well, to bring some good news into all of this, e even though this has ended on a depressing note, I mean, the sons of Eli are killed, uh, Israel has lost many soldiers, uh, the ark has been stolen, yet you still have God's promises. Uh, God promises to be faithful to his people, e even when he has to discipline them. And we still have Samuel, who is a true prophet of God, that will continue to speak hope to God's people. Uh, even in the midst of their discipline. And so it's a reminder to us that, that even though we're often guilty of being unfaithful to God, he's always faithful to us and will never leave us or forsake us. And the proof is that he was true to his promise to send his son as a savior, uh, who is the true king of God's people, the true king of Israel. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Pastor, as always, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being on. Absolutely, my privilege. Folks, next time when we gather, we'll finish up Chapter 4 
And that begins with Eli the priest getting the news of Israel's great defeat at the hands of the Philistines and the death of his two sons. His response? Well, basically, he falls over and dies. Then we'll take a tackle chapter 5, and we'll hear what happens with the ark and the possession of the Philistines. And here's a hint, God gets it back. So until then, folks, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.